0: Hello and welcome to Never Mind the Bar Charts with myself Mark Pack and at the time of recording the prime minister is Boris Johnson. Back on the show this time is co-author of the brilliant book Brexit Land Professor Rob Ford from Manchester. Last time, we talked about the long-term trends in British politics that led up to both the Leave vote and Johnson winning the 2019 election. Now that things are looking rather different for the Prime Minister, how are those long-term trends looking? Well, let's find out with Rob. Welcome back, Rob.
1: Uh, Great to be here, Mark.
0: Now, I guess we're going to have to pick our words really carefully, because this does feel like a moment in British politics where when we finish recording this, we'll both need to go quickly to online to check whether the Prime Minister is still in place or not. But I think that makes it a really interesting moment as well to think about the relative importance of long-term trends and short-term factors, or indeed about, you know, long-term trends versus the difference that individuals could make. But before we get into that, let's just do a quick recap. What was that long-term picture of British politics that you painted with your co-author Maria in Brexit Land?
1: Well, the argument that we were making in, in Brexitland is that there are two big demographic trends that run over the timescale of decades that are gradually reshaping our political landscape, which is, first of all, the mass expansion of higher education at universities, and secondly, the steady increases in ethnic diversity. And the reason both of those matter is that the attitudes of university graduates and ethnic minorities tend to overlap and tend to map on to a particular set of issues uh, to do with identity, culture, social change, and diversity, and for example, anti-racism. We were writing this incidentally before things like the Black Lives Matter movement happened, before things like the whole arguments over statue happened, but those were entirely in keeping with with what we were anticipating to happen which is that essentially new dividing lines are opening up in the electorate which are no longer about the traditional bread and butter issues of economics and public services and growth and redistribution but are about who we are who we're becoming and what we value and our argument is that's actually been a process that's been ongoing for a very long time but before it was essentially latent in the electorate. But what's happened in the last decade, and in particular, the last five years since the EU referendum, is those kinds of arguments have become mobilised into politics, and associated with particular parties, particular symbols, particular referendum stances. So that brings us to the pretty path we're at today. I guess one other
0: element of those longer term trends that when we dug into when, when you were on the podcast before, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes, but it's worth I think, maybe touching on again, is that that rise in the proportion of university graduates, more ethnically diverse population, essentially making Britain in a small L way, more liberal over the decades, feels like it's a long-term trend that's rather at odds with the experience of elections and voting in the last few years yep yeah, the referendum in 2016 voted leave not remain the 2019 general election was won by you know Boris Johnson. so what's the how do you reconcile that apparent sort of defeat for liberalism in the face of long-term trends that should be benefiting liberalism?
1: Well, I mean, one of my favourite authors, William Gibson, once said, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. And essentially, uneven distribution is the heart of the answer, because the other thing that we see in terms of rising populations of graduates and rising populations of ethnic minority is they cluster, they clump together. So you've got now a minority of seats where those trends are essentially the politics of today, the big city seats, London, uh, university seats and so on. But there's a much larger set of seats where the population is still much whiter, much older, a lot fewer graduates. And because our system is first past the post with geographically defined constituencies, if you've got two almost evenly sized groups, but one clumps together and one spreads out, you always want to be the party of the spread out side because you'll win, because uh, geography is on your side. That's how the Conservatives have benefited um, from it. With the EU referendum, it's a little bit more complex because while the EU referendum did map onto a lot of these trends, there were some very important kind of nuances in that. So, for example, a lot more ethnic minority voters are willing to vote for leave than them, them vote for the Conservative Party. That, that was quite important. Younger voters who have become very, very remain didn't turn out in large enough numbers. So there was a big turnout uh, differential. So if we'd have had compulsory voting Australian style, then it may well have been 50-50 or 52-48 the other way, but we don't. And the group that was most exercised and most high turnout was older, socially conservative white voters who, who leaned leave. So in general elections, geography is the answer. In the referendum, turnout is the answer.
0: Uh, Yeah, I I wonder if I'm quite convinced by that. I'd like to be convinced by that, because it would reinforce my belief in the arguments for electoral reform. But I mean, not only did Leave obviously get over 50% of the vote in the referendum, but even the Tory performance at the 2019 election was a high share of the vote. They were deep into the 40s. And I think all the way through you know, the last few round election victories for the Tories, they've had pretty good shares of the vote. You know, This has not been a Tony Blair getting what seemed in advance likely to be a comfortable win in 2005. But when you look at it afterwards, you realise only 36% of the vote, only three points. 3.7%. It's not sort of, in that sense, sneaking through. You know, mm-hmm. The Tories have done pretty darn well, I say, through gritted polling an impressive share of the vote. Where, and actually, if you're deep into the mid-40s, yeah, there are plenty of electoral systems other than first past the post, which would also deliver you at least a premiership, if not an overall majority on, on that share. So is that, yeah, I, I, uh, is that really enough of an explanation?
1: No, of course not. I mean, but we, you were asking about the structural factors. And I, I think your, your scepticism provides us a nice segue into the other issues that we want to discuss, which is the, the issues... And, and characters who've been important in the last general election and a couple of general elections before that, is where, where my new book comes in on the general election of 2019. So structure... <laughs> nicely plugged. Nicely <laughs> plugged. <laughs> uh, so structure is always... A big part of the story and as as someone whose background is in political sociology it's always on my mind the structure is never the whole story you know i mean marx was kind of right in saying you know people make their own history but in circumstances not of their own making so there's the structure that you're, you're you have to work with but then there are still options in terms of how you work with it and one area where the conservatives have enjoyed a persistent advantage over the past decade is in terms of leadership, in terms of competence, in terms of preference on the issue agenda. Voters rated David Cameron above... Miliband, they rated the Conservatives above Labour on the economy, on immigration, the issues that were highest on the agenda. Then in 2017, of course, the big uh, surprise was the very large increase in the Labour vote and that was tallied up with, you know, a big shift in sentiment towards Jeremy Corbyn in that general election campaign and a big shift in the issue agenda towards public services and austerity. I do think possibly one of the more under-discussed events of the past five years of politics is the labour 2017 campaign a lot has been said uh, about the failings of the conservative 2017 campaign and rightly so because it was full of failings but labour wanted a campaign that was focused on the legacy of austerity and investment of public services and they managed to get a campaign focused on the legacy of austerity in public services and they achieved the largest rise in their vote share since 1945 by getting voters to see the election through that lens. That is an illustration that whatever the landscape might be, and the landscape does change gradually, there are a range of ways in which voters can see the political argument within that landscape. So, and then that brings us to 2019 Mm. and Boris Johnson. And of course, the, the Johnson strategy from the summer of 2019 onwards pursued relentlessly was we need people to think two things. One, this election was unavoidable and two, this election will settle Brexit. And they managed to do that and thereby coalesced Uh, A coalition of voters, a large one, as you know, which was essentially nearly all of the voters who wanted leave to be done by any means necessary. But also, crucially, a big slice of voters who weren't necessarily very keen on Brexit, but had by that point become convinced that Brexit was a less bad outcome for the country than Jeremy Corbyn in 10 Downing Street. So there the other leader comes in, too.
0: And, And that, in a sense, is almost taking us to the polar opposite of where we started, is a lot of those factors are very dependent on a very small number of individuals that's that's the bit of politics history which seems amenable to an individual having a huge influence and i guess you know we've previously seen that tension between long-term trends and short-term impact of individuals most strikingly perhaps in the 1980s that you know through the 70s there seemed to be you know written in books not quite as good as brexit land but lots of very convincing cases about the dealignment of british politics moving away from a two-party class-based system and the rise of the liberals and then the formation of the sdp seemed to epitomize that trend but after a run of you know general elections in which there'd been close results even no overall majority we then got four Comfortable Tory majorities in a row, three comfortable Labour majorities in a row, and the political mould remained firmly unbroken in yeah. that respect. And 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 I guess the question, in a way, is is whether those Brexit land trends might, you know, run up against the similar a similar contingency of shorter term factors that result in actually politics looking somewhat different in the next few years. And I guess that's obviously the hope for the Tory party is that they can they can pull that off. But what's your What's your hunch about the relative strengths of the long-term trends and 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 those potential short-term efforts from the, from a conservative point of view to buck those trends?
1: I'm still and this is an uncomfortable position to be as, a, as an academic, particularly an academic who's who's written a lot about these subjects, mm. I'm still genuinely uncertain how that's going to play out because I think one of the really interesting things about the 2016 referendums the referendum sort of legacy is it's one of the great natural experiments in modern electoral politics because what was introduced into the wild so to speak were two new and very powerful political identities leavers and remainers i mean those terms have been with us ever since and most voters have you know will we'll name aside unprompted in terms of those two tribes they have an intuitive understanding of what those terms mean and what sort of people are associated with them and those tribal attachments and tribal ways of thinking have clearly influenced their behavior in in a really big way ever since. But we have no precedent for that. Mm. Identities that are linked to a referendum choice and now linked to a referendum outcome that is settled. I mean, the Labour Party, even the Liberal Democrats, is the most pro-European party, are not in the mood to reopen the argument about EU membership in, in the short run, it would seem. It's not... A salient part of our political debate whether we're going to go back in right now. And then the question becomes well, okay, what happens to these identities once they're no longer attached to a live political debate? Do they persist because people see them as a sort of shortcut for understanding political conflict? And clearly, the Conservatives have been trying to transfer them uh, to other kinds of issues, while Labour have been trying to avoid activating them at all costs. And the other possibility is that they kind of just gradually fade away. And older political identities that are still linked to ongoing arguments, arguments about energy bills or public services or the state of the economy or the NHS reassert themselves, in which case you shake the extra sketch again. You know, the, the, the shifts in voters that have been driven in part by the primacy of those Brexit attachments start to unwind and people return perhaps, either they return to older orientations or they just become up for grabs. I, I I
0: I wonder if there's a third possibility, which is that although, you know, as you say, even the Lib Dems, you know, we're not campaigning to rejoin the EU tomorrow. Nonetheless, it's possible that our relations with Europe could continue to be a significant part of British politics, just like for most of the march up until Leave's victory in the referendum, Eurosceptics were not Directly campaigning for Britain to leave the EU as soon as possible, they were campaigning against other elements of the EU and disengagement in different ways, or against new treaties. But you know, Euroscepticism definitely was a a noticeable part of British politics, not as big a part as the Leave Remain identities, but it was certainly a noticeable part pre twenty sixteen. You know, stretching back well at least into the nineteen nineties, arguably, arguably even earlier than that. So I I do wonder whether that that Leave Remain divide will just be kept alive by those continuing debates over Europe, even though they're not directly about, you know, join or or stay out, especially as I think a lot of the, a lot of people on both sides, uh, you know, aren't really, you know, you're not a lever or a remainer because of the exact detail of Clause 38 of Southern Treaty. It's a much more general outlook, and that general outlook, you know, it applies therefore to debates over things short of leave, leaving, or uh, sorry, rejoining or staying out.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. And I think an, a, another way of thinking about it is in terms of parties reputations. Mm. So I think David Cameron's intuition with regards Europe and saying, let's stop banging on about Europe and so on was, well, voters know that if they don't like close relations with the EU, we're the party you vote for. You don't need to keep telling them that. They know it. It's part of our reputation. It's part of our legacy. Similarly, it's not really necessary for Dem leading figures to go up every day flying the big blue flag of Europe, because people know that they're a pro-European party. And so if in years to come, they get upset with economic disruptions for being too far away from the EU or feel that, you know, a strategy for moving closer to the EU is, is what the country needs, then they know that's a party that's going to want to deliver that kind of strategy. Conversely, the Conservatives are now going to be the party of Brexit, you know, until the, the Earth... of falls into the expanding sun at the end of time, I suspect. The interesting sort of wild card in this is where the Labour Party land with voters, because the legacy of the past five years is that they're seen as on balance probably pro-EU because when it came to the crunch they offered the second referendum and so on and the bulk of their activists were pro-EU they made a lot of pro-EU noise but they're completely and their leader of course was a major figure in pushing for a second referendum and everything but they've gone completely silent on it and so the question is well what do voters make of that do they just sort of does does the reputation of the past kind of still filter through and they'll still be seen as pro-EU or will voters just stop seeing them as as like one side or the other in in the Europe issue and again since Britain joined the EEC we don't really have a precedent for that either because early on Labour were seen as divided in the Wilson years but with a very vocal Eurosceptic wing then later they became seen as pretty obviously pro-EU but there was no period where they were like nothing at all on Europe, neither of the major parties I think has had a period where they're nothing at all on, on Europe, they're either loudly divided on Europe or, you know, very clearly one side or the other. So it's it's another interesting experiment to see how voters will react to a Labour Party that are just like, you know, Brexit has happened, we've got to get on with it, not interested in talking about it. And I
0: think that in part is because Labour, I think rightly so, it, you know, looking at the sort of voters it needs to win back in red wall however one defines that that you know, there is the obvious electoral path for them is one that involves trying to appeal to both leavers and remainers at the same time i think yeah there are other paths which are certainly in the short term a lot trickier although one could argue that trying to straddle a divide might eventually you know be turn out to be impossible but certainly you know if you want the sort of the the least troublesome looking path is to try to rebuild the coalition that they used to have of leavers and remainers in, in bits of northern England. And so I think they will, I mean, my guess would be they will deliberately sit on the, the fence as long as possible. And in a way, the question is whether an election comes before external events force you know a bit at least of a coming off of the fence.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the problem is we we are still seeing arguments about the Northern Ireland Protocol. We've seen a lot of stories um, being pushed in the background by by other dramas, but but rumbling away there about frictions at ports and you know empty shelves and stuff and it would be difficult for labor not to take a position on those things forever you know that 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 was in a different way that the the corbyn labor sort of stance was to try and straddle the divide and and it worked for a while until it didn't because it started to really hit their credibility with voters i guess the advantage is it's really hard to see brexit returning to the kind of all-encompassing salience that it had before. And so the pressure that Labour will face to take a position one way or the other is much reduced. And, you know, they will probably make my guess is that they will probably try and fob voters off with exactly the kind of vapid slogan that we've seen from the incumbent Prime Minister, you know, something like make Brexit work, make Brexit better, a better deal for Britain or whatever it might be. That has... Basically zero content but says, yes, we still want Brexit, but we want a better one, you know, because that they feel will offer something to both sides of the divide. And they'll probably feel that Remain voters are not sufficiently exercised about this issue to risk a further term of Conservative government by not backing Labour. We're
0: going to have a Labour shadow cabinet member at some point who talks about the need for hardworking Brexit for hardworking families, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah, it's uh,
1: inevitable.
0: <laughs> we've, we've talked a lot about the uncertainties of what might happen. You know, I, I don't know if you're already beginning to think, you know, have half a mind on what you might write about the next general election. But, you know, it has is there anything that in the first half of the Parliament that we've seen so far that has struck you as likely to be particularly important in the story of how the next election plays out? Because I think we've had, obviously, in terms of, public policy and people's lives you know hugely you know hugely dramatic and traumatic event in terms of coronavirus although that's had rather less of an impact in many ways on on politics than you might expect it doesn't seem to have produced a massive change in wider values and the government now, at least, is very much, and the Prime Minister, very much back to the levels of popularity that you might expect of a party that's been in power for quite a while and in the sort of midterm of a parliament and so on. So, yeah, is there anything where that so far that you think is, oh, that's looking like that might, might turn out to be significant?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, we're going to need to talk about the pandemic and its impact on politics when we when we come to to look at the next parliament, you know, and the next general election. But like you say, the, the interesting thing is, you know, if we if we'd have been discussing this in say the summer of 2020, we would have been imagining that this would have been a huge potentially realigning issue for this parliament. You know, that the the issue of state of the NHS, protecting citizens, that these things were going to be very important, that, that maybe the pandemic would politicise people on new lines or it would reinforce force hold on. Instead, it seems to have been more like a passing storm, which was very unpleasant to, to live through at the time, but which has left the underlying sort of landscape pretty much as it was before. So there, there was a big spike in support for the government when it began. There was another one when the vaccines were rolled out. That, I think, created some rather unrealistic expectations on the Conservative side about how popular they were and how well things were going. Whereas those of us who know the history of public opinion will say, well, when you face national crisis conditions, and the usual example is war, that this was not so different in terms of voters really, really wanted the government to protect them from a major threat, you know, and that that was kind of a universal across the political divide that everyone saw that, combating that threat as the priority. So, you know, what we know about those effects is that they fade once the threat fades, and that's exactly what we've seen happen, and, you know, politics has returned to normal. What is interesting when we compare it to, say, America, to a lesser extent also some European countries, is that... Views about Corona policy don't seem to map onto political divides. Certainly nowhere near as much as some in the political elite think they do. Lockdowns were very, very popular with everyone. Vaccines were very, very popular with everyone. Opening up again and keeping the schools open were very, very popular with nearly everyone. There was no big partisan polarisation on those issues, which which wasn't a given, incidentally. Like I say, some countries have seen that. But then in terms of where we are now, the interesting thing is, and I, I guess we have to get on to talking about it, is... It, it will be a very, very strange thing to write to say that what wasn't important about the pandemic was the, the hundreds of thousands of people who were hospitalised and died. What was important about the pandemic is how a few dozen people in Downing Street behaved during lockdown. But at the moment, it looks like that might end up yeah, being... I, uh,
0: indeed, And and I don't know what designs there will be on the covers of future general election books but it feels like cake may well feature quite highly Uh, (laughs) but it just particularly the whole bizarre twist and turns of the cake story i mean the atrocious attempt to defend the prime minister by one of his allies using the phrase ambushed by cake and then denying there was any cake and then journalists realizing actually the times had run the story about cake back in 2020 and everyone had missed it It's it's a completely absurd sequence of events but i wonder if There is a greater significance to that cake than it might seem at first, which is that generally the events that most move people's perceptions of political parties either are ones that completely shatter a previous conception, so Britain crashing out the ERM shattered the Tory reputation on economic management for a generation, or more frequently, they're ones that go with the grain of what people instinctively believe or like to believe about a party. And basically the story of this parliament so far has been when the questions have been, is the government doing things efficiently, which traditionally lots of people do view the Tories, although I might think they're wrong in this, but do view the Tories as being efficient at getting things done. When that's been the question, people have given the Tories a lot of leeway. When the question has been, are the Tories selfish, out of touch, in it for themselves, thinking that it's one law for them another law for the rest of us that again actually plays into a widespread preconception about the Tories and it's the one and therefore that's the issue that has you know has now cut through because it's sort of reminding people almost of what they most many people have always thought about the Conservatives and in that sense the cake is almost a key to cake can be a key it's a key to unlocking people's memories about what they've always thought about the Conservatives.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that, that, that's a very plausible account of things. And in, in that way, the recent, you know, party gate scandals, cake scandals and so on have something in common with The dementia tax and the fox hunting issue in the Mm. campaign in that both of those touched a nerve with voters in terms of these are things that they distrusted and disliked about the conservatives and it was a kind of mask slipping type phenomenon i also wonder if there's a second thing going on with all of this which is that the really dangerous thing about the party scandals is that they're extremely easy to understand Mm. So I think there's been a kind of background hum of stories of corruption and incompetence all the way through the pandemic. But for most voters who aren't paying a lot of attention, it's just a bit of a mess and they don't really know what's going on. They've got this suspicion that things aren't perhaps being done as well as they might be, but it's not really much more. Than, and they, they can't be digging into the details of procurement or you know the, the, the running of different services to figure out whether or not there's anything to this. So all they're left with is suspicion. But then, you know, the the thing about the party stories is it's the smoking gun that says, oh, yeah, well, we did feel there was something off about this lot. And this this is clearly our suspicions were right. So it's become a kind of lightning rod for what might have been concerns that have already been building up about this government all the way through, but which didn't have an easy means of expression. So it's both that it reinforces existing reservations that people have about the conservatives that in some cases go back decades but also that it that it provides an articulation of recent reservations about this particular conservative government
0: yeah and on that basis therefore how grim is the political outlook for the conservatives because i guess there are three sort of camps in the conservative party at the moment there are those who think they should stick with boris johnson because he's a great vote winner there are those who think they should dump Boris Johnson and then everything will be all right because they'll get a new leader, et cetera. And then obviously there are the pessimists who are worried about you know, the longer-term damage to the Tory party and is even changing a leader going to be sufficient. Which, which of those three do you think is most likely to be closer to having it right?
1: Well, I mean, I wanted to get a bit of historical perspective on this, Mark. So I, I spent a little bit of yesterday morning digging through the Ipsos Mori archive because they just released their latest leader approval Mm. figures to to, to find out how low previous leaders had fallen in the past and you know whether or not they'd gone on to recover and so on and Johnson's rating right now in, in the just published Mori poll his net rating on approval is minus 46 which is the sixth Lowest rating recorded by a leader of either of the largest parties in the whole 45 years of the Maury poll. And the other ones are Corbyn in September 2019, John Major after ERM in mm-hmm. August 94, Margaret Thatcher at the height of the poll tax crisis, yeah. Michael Foote at the height of the SDP crisis, and Gordon Brown at the height of the global financial crisis.
0: So all, all people who went on to lose, because that Mrs Thatcher rating would have been after the be, last... Yeah. Really, yeah. Right.
1: They were either ousted or they lost. yeah the, the ones who stuck around till the next general election all lost heavily all of them and the one who didn't was was thatcher and what i find very uh, puzzling is that apparently johnson's aides are circulating a headline from the daily experiment mm. that thatcher was ousted. saying what have they done and it feels like they've got that story exactly backwards margaret thatcher was immensely unpopular mm. the conservatives ousted her and replaced her with someone who's, whose net rating never sank into negative territory through to election day and they won another term in office and their conclusion is, we don't want to do that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Just thinking, we <laughs> ousted somebody and then had another seven years in power, being a bad thing to avoid seems very perverse. One other little stat, which it pains me to say, but I did look up and noticed was true, is that if you look at not not the net rating for Johnson, but just the percentage saying they're dissatisfied with him, mm. it's now worse figure than even Nick Clegg managed in the in the very depths of 2010 to 15. And you know, it, yeah, I. There's a lot, obviously, we could say about Nick Clegg, you know, what he got right, what he got wrong, etc. But I think, you know, when you're less popular with the public, the Nick was at the least popular moment of the Lib Dems being in government. I mean, that is seriously unpopular.
1: Yeah, and and there are a few, I mean, I've tried hard to play devil's advocate on this and say, well, you know, what's the case for Johnson bouncing back? And it's just quite difficult because... Uh, and that, that's a point in terms of the absolute figures that the net rating doesn't capture, is that in cases where leaders have bounced back, In particular, you see it sometimes with, with opposition leaders who hit a low ebb and then they come back. Corbyn in 2017, for example, although I'm not sure conservative aides want to go around saying Johnson's not <laughs> yet, look at <laughs> Corbyn in 2017.
0: Just about every other bizarre argument you yeah. yeah. Past, so maybe we
1: shouldn't run that one out. <laughs> exactly, I suppose it's it's no, its no more bizarre than an invisible cake defence. Yeah, but, but in some of those cases... That there were a large there was a large chunk of voters who don't made their minds up about somebody often in particular because they're in the opposition so they're not in the spotlight what you can see with Johnson's ratings right now and much like Thatcher's in the spring of 1990 everyone has made their mind up you know people are there's very few don't knows in that and there's very few soft opinions in that people have very firm opinions about what's happened it's really hard to see what would change that going forward even if, even if we imagine that Boris Johnson was the kind of person who, who had the, the necessary self-discipline to completely reinvent himself and avoid any further controversy, and there is nothing in his career to date to suggest that he is... It's it's going to be really hard for voters to reverse that kind of opinion. I mean, Brown clawed some ground in the final year of that parliament, having hit that low. Ebb. People gave him some credit for some elements of the economic management. He still got an absolute pasting in the election because people had made their minds up by that point. They were unhappy about what what had happened, and that they weren't going. You know, voters aren't generous <laughs> they don't tend to give people the benefit of the doubt quite the opposite and conservatives are normally good at realizing that but they don't see the, why they think voters will show um, johnson a generosity that they haven't shown any other leader who's fallen this low is not clear to me the other thing is well the other two things actually second is the internal politics of this i don't see how this can be good for the conservatives long run that there i think the, the the precedent of his immediate predecessor is very relevant may lost all authority she she couldn't do a big transformative reshuffle because people just threatened to resign and if they resigned it would precipitate an immediate leadership crisis people from the back benches could insist on everything and block everything because um, she couldn't say no to them because she lacked authority within the party her position was permanently unstable she could not steer the ship she could not do things that vocal individuals didn't want done Johnson's going to be in the same boat. Although he has a bigger majority, it's going to be a much more restive majority. And if 30 plus Tory MPs want anything, they can go to number number 10 Downing Street and demand it. And it'll be hard for him to say no, because he's constantly going to be worried about this precipitating a leadership crisis. And the public can pick up on that. Mm. You know, that's the... I grew up with the late 90s Tory government and that had that feel to it, a government that was hostage to its own backbenches, that was adrift. And how is Johnson going to avoid that outcome? Could he, for example, fire Rishi Sunak tomorrow? I don't think he could. So if you're thinking about the remaining years of the the parliament, how, how, how can they govern, how can he govern in a way that conveys to voters a sense of purpose, a sense of direction, a sense of unity, given where he is now?
0: Although that is, you have now given me that thought that in the original reports about Boris Johnson and the cake, the reports that essentially we all, you know, didn't pay attention to back in 2020, it involved Rishi Sunak being one of the people who was singing him happy birthday. So perhaps perhaps he will try to argue that he was ambushed by (laughs) Rishi Sunak and others and therefore they're to blame. But I guess the problem as well is, and I don't know how much this will cut through to the public, but there's a risk it might do, is that... It's hard to see how the net outcome of the Sue Gray report and the police isn't in some way some members of staff either being disciplined or having to lose their jobs. And therefore the risk is, as you say, that he's so politically weak that there are no politicians who can carry the can. And that would just be a really awful look that you've got a political scandal and the outcome is you dump on some staff. And I think Mm -hmm. that might be the sort of thing that You know, normally you wouldn't expect the public to really notice the detail of a prime minister sacking a member of staff or whatever, but it might on this occasion be because it would just add to that picture of both Boris Johnson not being in control, but also he'll just, everyone who comes into contact with him seems to end up getting their careers really badly burnt. He's got a sort yeah. of reverse Midas
1: touch. And also what people want to see is accountability. I mean, I think most of the public have made their, their minds up about what happened. There's there's a loyalist section of the public that are like, it's exaggerated, it's unimportant, it doesn't matter. And then there's a much larger section of the public that are like, the rules are broken and someone needs to carry the can for that. There needs to be responsibility taken and accountability. And if what they see is a few junior min- minions slapped on the wrist or kicked out of the office, then the risk is, and you know, this was one of the most lasting sources of public anger in the financial crisis. Was nobody who messed everything up for us ever got held to account for it? And there's a risk that that narrative then gets going in the second half of the Parliament that not only do they break the rules they set for the rest of us, but nobody ever gets, nobody ever takes responsibility for it. And again, that has a very mid 1990s feel to it, or expensive scandal feel to it, and will be a very dangerous. Situation, I think, for the government, because even as the details fade fade from memory, that kind of mud Mm. of you people do what you want and never take responsibility will stick unless that, you know, there's the reason we have these stories from, you know, from history and theology of, you know, the, the scapegoat and the sacrificial lamb and all the rest of it. Sometimes people need that kind of catharsis to feel that an issue has been properly recognized. And Politically, it's going to be very difficult for Johnson to find a sufficiently senior. I mean, you could argue that getting rid of Cummings helped him with the first wave of this kind of story. People felt, well, you know, that's, that's someone that we don't like, who we know who he is, uh, and he's gone because of this stuff. But who's, who's going to be the full guy this time? I mean, do we end up with a situation where the only person who resigns over this is a woman who wasn't even at any of the parties, mm. which is where we are right now?
0: Yeah, and who laughed a lot less about them than probably we are all laughing in, in between the anger now as well. Yeah, uh, it's you know, super awkward about it, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess the one other element that Boris Johnson loyalists would be arguing around all of this is that Johnson has a particular magical vote-winning ability that might yet therefore see him and, and his party through this all. And the basic argument being that, you know, he... He twice got elected for the mayor of London in a you know small L liberal, very frequently heavily Labour in the ballot box city, that he pulled off the 2019 election victory, winning seats in all sorts of unlikely places, and probably rightly can claim that that was much more about him than the individual candidates. And I mean, I've never been that persuaded about this idea that Boris Johnson is this really popular person, partly because prior to the 2019 election, you know, you looked at his leadership ratings and things like that. Ipsos Mori tracker, they were pretty poor. You know, he didn't have a great honeymoon. He was pretty unpopular to begin with. That said, clearly, I've got my fingers burnt. You can go back and read at least one blog post of mine from the summer of 29 about Boris Johnson, which doesn't look very smart given the outcome of the 2019 election. So what's your take on it about Does he have some magical vote-winning... Well, has he had some magical vote-winning ability in the past? And if he has, is that something that is still there and therefore could still ride to the rescue for the Tories?
1: Well, I mean, this this is a really interesting one to, to unpack, actually. Because, I mean, firstly, you're right, he's not a broadly popular politician, wasn't a broadly popular politician at the last election. He was less popular on every single day of the 2019 election campaign than Theresa May was on the equivalent day of the 2017 Campaign. They obviously faced a much more unpopular opposition leader. He won't get that advantage next time. But all of that said, not broadly popular, but popular where it counts. So we we looked at this issue closely in in the, the 2019 election book. And what we found is that views of Johnson were particularly influential with the Leave voting Labour supporters who switched to the Conservatives in substantial numbers and obviously delivered a lot of seats. This is, of course, the great mythology of the Red Wall. I mean, those those voters weren't just in Red Wall seats. There were just more of them in Red Wall seats. But they're very, very important slice of the electorate. And Johnson c- counted with them. And the reason he seemed to count with them is partly Brexit, but also partly, coming back to this argument about parties' reputations and voters' suspicions of parties, because he's not seen as a typical. Conservatives. He's seen as a man apart from the party. He has, he shares that quality with, for example, pre-Iraq War Tony Blair in that respect. But the interesting question then is whether or not this scandal will do to him what the Iraq war did in a different way to Tony Blair, which is that it becomes such an albatross around his neck that it kind of neutralizes that advantage. So voters might still see him as different to the Conservative Party, but not necessarily like him anymore. So then he doesn't have that advantage because it's outweighed by his general unpopularity. And the point I would make on that in closing is I would probably be more... If I was a Conservative MP, I'd probably be more optimistic about uh, the the possibility of Johnson coming back than than some of the other leaders we named who've sunk this low foot. Thatcher after 11 years in in office, Corbyn in 2019, Major after ERM, because he does have... It's difficult to define quality, but all of the people I've spoken to who have been involved in campaigns about Johnson have pointed to it in different ways. He's just very hard to campaign against because you can't pin him down in the same way as a typical politician. And I noticed that actually in the last couple of prime minister's questions, which I watched all of. I thought, well, this is going to be great theatre. He's very good. at And in a way, it's turning his greatest weakness into his greatest strength. The same thing that leads him to be very poor at taking responsibility and being honest and so on also means he's tremendously good at finding ways to reframe the thing so that it doesn't make him look as bad. So, you know, last week at PMQs, I think he was saying, oh, well, they're, they're saying I should resign because the thing they fear most is me being prime minister. And I thought, well, that's an extraordinary statement of chutzpah, given where you are right now. And I can't imagine someone like Major in '94 trying that. But it worked tremendously well with his own benches, helped him win the half hour from the perspective of his his own benches and neutralise the attacks from Labour. And this is the kind of thing he does a lot in campaign mode. It's very hard to run against. Cummings has talked about how there's two Johnsons. There's Lazy Johnson, Trolley Johnson and Self-Aware Johnson. And Self-Aware Johnson is a formidable campaigner, but it seems he doesn't have the discipline or capacity to keep Self-Aware Johnson switched on. For long periods of time
0: i'm often reminded of a clip from i think it was bbc regional news might have been itv in which case apologies to itv but i think it was bbc regional news when he was mayor of london and there was some sort of mini scandal story that they were trying to get an interview with him from and a response from him and he had been refusing them and in the end the journalist and the camera crew essentially doorstepped him but in a corridor in the sort of city hall building and he just walked past them singing la 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 I'm not listening la 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 I'm not listening and I thought that's the is in a sense him in the, yeah, the mm-hmm. essence of Boris Johnson that if you either like him or are willing to give him the doubt the response to that is amusement if you're angry with him the response to that is you know it it provokes you to even stronger negative emotions. Mm. And and in that sense, it feels to me like he's, as a campaigner, he's a sort of double or quits person. You know, he's His style, when it works or who it works on, is massively effective, but it's also massively off-putting when it's not working. And it's a bit like the story about him hiding in the fridge. You know, there's a yeah. whole load of people who, in a sense, all take the view of, well, good on him, you know, the journalists are these, you know, annoying pests, you know. <laughs> And you know, and I don't trust the newspaper, you know, newspaper journalists and all of that. So you know, good on him for hiding in the fridge and 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 and, and so on. And then obviously, other people who react to that were sort of bemused horror that a, a a a politician might might think that's a sensible way uh, to behave. And 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 both, yeah, I I think one of the things we really don't know is actually how many people might move between one or the other category versus that question. On the other hand, of actually. Whether it's about mobilisation, you know, it might be that the undoing of Boris Johnson is not so much his behaviour driving people from the Tories to Labour, but his behaviour driving some of those lower turnout leave voters who voted from 2019 to go back to not voting. And Mm. conversely, some of those disillusioned Labour supporters who didn't vote in 2019 coming back out to vote for Labour. Yeah. Globalisation or or persuasion will, I'm sure, be one of the things that the numbers will be pulled over at the next election.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think double or quits is a great way of characterising the, the dilemma um, for the Conservatives because, on the one hand, he does have this proven capacity to campaign in a way that is completely unique to him. You know, people have said, well, imagine some of the lines he says coming out of the mouth of any other politician and they just wouldn't work and he makes them work. But as you say, it has this quality of, You know, if people are on his side, they find that charming. If they're not, they find it really infuriating. And the risk is that more people have joined that latter camp, in which case, potentially, he he digs them a much deeper hole in the election and the campaign makes it even worse. Another category, of course, that would be of interest to Liberal Democrats is that there's all those seats where the Lib Dems are second, where it's the kind of Tory remainers who have never liked Johnson. And if they get sufficiently irritated with his kind of antics, then that's a great opportunity for Lib Dems, sometimes Labour as well, in those kinds of seats. So there's that. But then on the other side of the ledger, there is the fact that if you look at the potential alternatives to Johnson, there is, and you know, people are, you never know how people will be in, in the highest office till they're in it. So maybe one of them may rise to this. But there's no one who has that obvious quality of, being seen as something apart from the Conservative Party in the way that Johnson has. I mean, to be honest, politicians of that kind don't come along very often in any party. So it's not a surprise that we can't see one. And it's not necessarily a a negative reflection on, on their qualities. It's just that this kind of thing is a rare, rare thing indeed. And so it will, I think, give a lot of them pause because they know they're losing something that's a kind of unique resource, albeit a high risk resource. And it's not obvious what they're getting on the other side of the ledger if they do so. But what they are getting is insurance against the risk of Johnson blowing up even more and making things even worse.
0: <laughs> I mean, here's the thought if you were to think back to Ed Miliband and the Ed Stone and that idea of you know, engraved tablet stuck in the Downing Street Garden. I think Boris Johnson is probably the one leader, at least in recent years, I can imagine, who could have pulled that off successfully. Yes, so if, yes if, he exactly. had, if, if we'd never had the Edstone and he had unveiled something similar in the 2019 election... I would have been infuriated when I would have seen it, but I suspect it would have worked with the voters he needed to... Uh,
1: yeah, he would have pranced it. around in front of it and said some ridiculous <laughs> things from some Greek legend or something, and people would have thought it was all, like, amusing comedy. He would have made it into a spoof of itself. Mm. He's one of the few politicians that can do that with a situation like that. Well, let's really
0: hope his team is not listening to this podcast and don't get <laughs> any ideas.
1: They'll never do They'll never do an Edstone, because the original Edstone was actually Linton Crosby's first campaign in Australia, and it, it doomed his campaign candidate so he oh, said yes, I've forgotten that, that. yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's wrap up on that interesting note but I just think one one final question as we do what do you think we should all be looking out for in politics in the next few weeks or months that might help give a pointer to how all the different issues we've we've been talking about might play out what you know is, is there anything that particularly might be a telling sign of which way politics is going to end up going?
1: Well, I mean, there's a couple of things I've been looking at because I've been getting quite frustrated. There's very low signal to noise ratio out there at the moment because this story is very hard to follow and nobody really knows what's going on. Uh, And it's hard to know how things will settle after it. But I've been trying to look at some more underlying things. And two I've been watching closely are... One, the issue agenda. So another thing that you get in the Maury polls is they, it's one of my favourite questions in polling. Mm. They ask people, what what's important? What, what are the important issues you want solved in politics? But they don't give them any prompts at all. So they have to say or type in what co- occurs to them spontaneously. It's, it's a great way of getting a sense of what people are actually, have at the front of their minds in terms of politics. And that has been changing all the way through this parliament, obviously COVID dominated early on, then there was the first Brexit deadline, Brexit spiked up. Right now, COVID and Brexit are both sliding down together. And you've got a package of issues, the environment, housing, healthcare, what else is there? I I think possibly uh, inequality as well that have been rising up. And when you look at that kind of package of issues you think well that none of that looks particularly favorable terrain mm. for the center for the conservatives all of it looks like favorable terrain for, for labor and the liberal democrats potentially of course that can change going into a campaign but that's something i'm monitoring just because it's very very different to the issue agenda we've got used to in much of the past 15 years in politics immigration is gone europe is going but the economy is oddly enough, given the COVID crisis and everything like that, is also sliding down. And you've got these other issues about investment in public services, inequality, housing, that, you know, feel like the austerity legacy, you know, they're in the conversation in the front of voters' minds. So I'm watching that. The other thing that I've been been watching quite closely is the economic competence statistics. Mm. Now, you know, I've written a book that basically sort of said, oh, it's it's about these structural divides, these identity conflicts, it's not about competence. And for, for a significant section of the political landscape, I do think that's true. But, you know, politics has many, many moving parts. Competence does matter to many voters too, especially the more undecided, swingy voters. And so it's worth monitoring this kind of statistic too because it gives us a, a sense of how things are going. Now, Labour never lead on that. They never even led on that at the height of, you know, the Blair Brown years. The best they ever managed to do is narrow the gap. And right now, the gap is as narrow as it has been for a, a good long time, going back to the early new Labour years. If I was a Conservative, I'd be very, very concerned about that. Because normally the one Trump card they have, you know, it's the one that, that generations of Conservative campaigns have, have played. Don't risk Labour. Britain is booming. Don't let Labour wreck it tax bombshell coming from Labour. Labour can't be trusted with the economy. We can all reel off the slogans from, you know, 70 years of Conservative campaigns. If that's no longer going to be a strong card in their deck, it's a big problem for them. And so the fact that that number has been drifting against them quietly whilst all of this has been going on, I think is something to pay some attention to going forward. And
0: particularly as we're not in the middle of, say, a really sharp downturn in the economy. It feels like whatever's driving that is is likely to be a longer term factor maybe a medium term rather than a long term factor but is, it isn't just about oh you know tough couple of quarters for the economy it'll all come right next month
1: exactly exactly in a sense it would be better for them if it was crisis driven because there would be the chance to to recover from it but it seems to be more global than that and reputational it seems to be people just drifting against them you know, in a kind of broad sense, you know, and maybe it's linked to that kind of inchoate sense of corruption and incompetence or something like that. Whatever the, the sources of it, and I imagine if you're a conservative strategist or pollster, you'll be trying to dig into the sources of it. It's, it's a deeply worrying thing for the conservatives because, I mean, it would be equivalent to the Labour Labor Party losing their advantage on the NHS, It'd be like, well, we're going into this campaign without our strongest card to play. So the fact that that number has been declining for them is something I've noticed. And I'm going to be I'm going to be watching as we get towards the the May locals.
0: And one way people, of course, can watch you watching that trend is by following you on Twitter. So thank you hugely. That's been really interesting, Rob. And people can track how those trends develop through Rob's eyes by following on Twitter at Rob Ford Manx, as in short for Manchester. I'm, of course, on Twitter at Mark Pack. And this podcast is uh, at Bar Chart Podcast. Do look out in the show notes for follow-up links uh, to what we've discussed, including, I'll put some links through to that Ipsos Mori data that we've mentioned, and Rob and his co-author Maria's previous appearances on this podcast, where we talked about the book land in much more detail. So thank you hugely for your time, Rob. Thank you everyone for listening. And if you did enjoy listening, please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. See you next time.